Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University. University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of America and Beyond with Paul Sterebin. As you have probably recognized, if you listen to this podcast regularly, I am not Paul Sterebin. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And Paul and I decided that this special edition of the podcast would be me interviewing him about his brand new book, Putin's Exiles, Their Fight for a Better Russia, which is out from Columbia Global Reports in 2024. Paul, welcome to your show. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Marshall. It's it's good to be here. Absolutely. Well, let's get right into it. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. Um, this will be kind of the Russia in- inflected version of of myself, but um, always have been a lover of Russian literature. You know, crime and punishment in my teenage years was one of my great kind of reads that sort of just felt like it opened my eyes. I mean, I was just a you know a suburban you know middle class uh, kid growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts, and so this was like wow. You know, right? It just seemed ex- extremely exotic. So I grabbed the chance that I had as a journalist to go to Russia uh, as the Moscow bureau chief for Business Week. This was, as it turned out, the first of four years of what has been a very long running uh, tenure for Vladimir Putin. So I arrived at the end of 1999, and one way or another, and you and I have talked about this as times as well, since you have your own background, of course, in Russia as a historian. Uh, I've just been fascinated by Russia at virtually every level, you know, the people, the society, the governance, the tragedy, the trauma, uh, you name it. It's it's just not a boring story. You know, that's one way to look at it. So, um, yeah, I've been going back there, visiting. So this book, uh, yeah, this came about more recently, of course, and we can talk about that. But uh, my yeah. Russia fixation sort of, you know, has has not really abated. Yeah, I don't know who said this, but it was some people always attribute these things to Churchill. Everything's attributed to Churchill, but it wasn't yeah. Churchill. And he said, 
the East is not a place, it's a career. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> for right. Many of us, for many of us, Russia is not a place, it's a career. Yeah. So let's get to the book. Um, why did you write this book? So it began with an interest in going inside of Russia. My sort of line about this, it connects with the East as a career. I've always believed in reporting the story uh, from the inside out, you know. So as a foreign, you know, quote unquote, foreign correspondent, it's less interesting to me what I might think or what my compatriots might think in the West. But, you know, what do the people think on the ground? I'm kind of like a sponge. And it has always occurred to me that there are a lot of prevailing sort of cliches about Russia that are just too easily subscribed to, as in the case of all cliches. So I had convinced the publisher that we would do this uh, project from inside of Russia, and I would go to places that you know journalists don't typically spend a lot of time in and focus on the society, on its institutions. I mean, things like the Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church, which has always fascinated me for some reason. But alas, the war happened February 2022. My visa application to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was just sort of swinging in the wind. I mean, it wasn't a yes, you can come or no, you can't come. But, you know, the way to interpret that is uh, no, basically, uh, you're not going to be getting your visa at any time soon. So I thought, well, if I can talk to the Russians uh, inside of Russia, a million or so of them have fled. Why don't I talk to them outside of Russia? And I just recast the project basically as these exiles, which is a pretty expansive term, which we could talk about, but essentially this growing Russian diaspora, which was fueled uh, largely by the war and people escaping, getting out for various reasons. So then I, you know, went onto the sort of repertorial aspect of the project to actually visit and meet and talk with uh, some of these people who had left. So could you tell us a little bit about who you talked to, how you picked them? Yeah. So I really had to kind of narrow it down because uh, most of the exodus has been to former Soviet republics. And among them in particular, places like Armenia, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, some Kyrgyzstan. So sort of the Caucasus and former Soviet Central Asia. And like any project, you know, it, there were just practical limitations to how much you could do, how much time you can spend on the road, how much money you're going to, you know, your budget and so forth. So I thought that the most, the two most interesting places I could go to and be absolutely sure of finding people without knowing exactly who I would find were the capitals of Armenia and Georgia. So Yerevan and, and Tbilisi, respectively, were both of which I had been to previously. So I had some kind of surface familiarity with them. And I knew they were relatively contained places. Uh, I also went to Batumi, which is uh, on the western uh, shores of, of Georgia on the Black Sea. So basically, I kind of just parachuted in and I'd made some sort of prearrangements to meet with sort of leaders of civic groups and things like that. And one of them scheduled, for example, in Tbilisi, I'm sorry, in Yerevan, a meeting, just open-ended invitation for any of the Russian uh, <laughs> exiles, passport holders to meet with me and talk about whatever they wanted about their exile experience. And so 
probably about 15 or so people showed up. We spoke for a couple of hours. I went out to dinner with one of them. And so it was just, it was just really a kind of, you know, not so much of a selected group on my part, but just people who were interested in talking to me. I suppose that in a way is a, is a selection and a similar thing in Tbilisi as well. I mean, I did do for this project a lot of Zoom interviews with sort of notable exiles, people like uh, Sergei Guryev in, in Paris, who was the <clears throat> at the Science Po in, in Paris. But but for the most part, you know, I wanted to get a more sort of granular sense of things from just you know people almost at, at random who would be speaking to me about their you know what they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. So I'm a historian. I'm always interested in the historical background. Uh, 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 we discussed this earlier, but the idea of the dissident emigre is hardly new in Russian history. It it's, goes back to the 19th century, if not before. And I'm interested in hearing what uh, you have to say about the way that these people think about themselves. Do they put themselves in the tradition of Herzen and even Lenin? Do they think of themselves as political exiles? So let me, yeah, I'll, uh... I think the best way to answer that question is to kind of talk about two people who come to mind, and mm -hmm. one of whom fits the, that description, and the other, I would say, does not. And both, in a way, are, are typical. So the first person uh, whose story, you know, these 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 people, they've kind of become my uh, characters of, of of a sort. You know, I, I feel like I've absorbed their their stories and thought a lot about them. So Nastia, Nastia's story. Uh, Nastia is a young woman who grew up in uh, Karelia in a, in a region of northern Russia that is uh, on the border with Finland and grew up in a village there. And her mother told her from day one that she was supposed to have nothing to do with politics, that nothing good could come out of any kind of involvement in politics in Russia. And she heeded that. She went to the Medical Institute in St. Petersburg and was just consumed with, you know, the need to get her medical degree. At that time, they were, you know, St. Petersburg is a fairly liberal city. There were anti-Putin protests, and she wanted absolutely nothing to do with them. Uh, when I met her in Yerevan, she told me she would have rather put a gun to her head, you know, <laughs> than, than give up her medical degree. Mm -hmm. And yet, then the war, you know, the war came, it it repulsed her, it, it uh, she just rethought everything. She fled with her not particularly political husband to Yerevan. And when I met her, she was starting to, you know, she had a kind of coming out. She participated in a public uh, protest against Putin in Yerevan, which was uh, <clears throat> photographed and, and taped by Russian state media. And her mother saw her back mm -hmm. in Russia and screamed at her and yeah. accused her of being an, an enemy of the state and uh, even like a paid you know, propaganda tool. And, you know, her mother took that back. And, and you know, Nastia was uh, told me she was now taking lessons in Ukrainian and she hoped that at the end of the war in Ukraine, she could go there and help restore the country. Um, and so just really a, almost like a personal, you know, quote unquote, woke Russian. I don't mean that in an ironic yeah, way, no, but just, mean. Yeah. yeah, kind of rethinking everything. So I don't think Nastia saw herself in any kind of larger 
political context, historical context, as you're suggesting. But then also in Yerevan, I met one of the foot soldiers for uh, Alexei Navalny, you know, even though Navalny is in a prison camp, you know, far, far removed in, in, in Russia, uh, he has a very active organization on the ground, people in throughout the diaspora who are working for him. And I met this fellow, Daniel, in Yerevan, who I think does meet that kind of revolutionary kind of political context. I mean, these are hard people. They reminded me almost, you know, the, the IRA men used to be called the hard men, uh, you know, sort of really seasoned and battle tested and very conscious of having put themselves out there and having made a kind of irrevocable decision. And so Daniel was was like that. You know, he was from Siberia, he, Omsk. He was at the vigil when Navalny was was poisoned there. He was on the payroll of the Navalny team. And from Yerevan, he told me he was doing various, you know, political things that extended back into Russia. And I had the sense of a person, and I have the sense of the Navalny team like this as well, as people who are conscious of the revolutionary tradition, uh, conscious that everything is preparedness. It's not, you know, at some point, Vladimir Putin will go. It could be in office, it could be, you know, there could be a succession, but they are prepared, you know, for that moment. And they know, you know, it's 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 the hour after the uh, the, the revolution or after the the fall of the the czar <clears throat> or his murder in the case of the Bolsheviks, when everything is on the line and you have to be organized for that moment. So I think you have a nucleus of pretty well organized exiles. By no, by no means, you know, we're not talking about huge numbers in terms of all of the people who've left, but you know, how big were the numbers of the Bolsheviks? You know, you mentioned, yeah. uh, you know, Lenin and, and Trotsky, who had sort of a, a interesting and somewhat tense relationship with the Bolsheviks while we were in exile. But nevertheless, they're all working for the same goal. And uh, just this kind of hardcore that pretty much dedicated their lives, you know, to that one aim. So you you do have some people like that in uh, among yeah, the people that I met. That, thanks for introducing these two figures, and it's a nice segue to my next question. Is it possible to separate anti-war among these people? Is it possible to separate anti-war sentiment from a more general program, one that is presumably anti-Putin or anti-autocratic? Because my sense is that a lot of people left because of the war, full stop. But there seems to be these other people that involved in the camp, for example, who have broader goals. Is that reflected in your conversations? Yes. I mean, I think that there are definitely people, when you say left because of the war, there are there's a there were many people who left when Putin uh, in the fall of 2022, so this is some months after the war began in February, levied a conscription. So it mm -hmm. became clear to them that they would be, or at least they could be vulnerable to being drafted and actually being put in the army and having to go to the battlefront. Uh, there was a first wave that left, if you bring the clock back to February, just when the invasion began. And that was for various reasons. I mean, so, some people, I talked to one fellow who was a Moscow advertising executive doing pretty well in Moscow. He had done a little bit of anti-Putin 
kind of volunteer activity, but he was not, you know, by no means like a full-time, you know, professional activist. And when the war <clears throat> began, he was shocked as, as I think most Russians uh, were, they didn't expect that. And he just, he jumped into his, his car, into his, you know, his, his Mazda, his S and, and with his dog, his uh, big fluffy Samoy. And he just drove as fast as he could to the border with uh, Latvia, you know, st stopping only to, fill his uh, anti-anxiety uh, prescription. Uh, he thought the border might be sealed. I mean, that was one thought. You know, how it is in Russia? I mean, pe people, it's not like in the West. They, they, There is a kind of habit of mind that, you know, tomorrow could really be dramatically different than today. Yeah. It's, a, it's a kind of, you know, mental piece of equipment or something that I think people have maybe they don't even know that they have it but but these things trigger it so he was like that you know so you had these people they, they just wanted to get out because they thought that would be better than staying there um and then you had the people who left because they knew they might get conscripted they are not necessarily political in the way that we you know might describe well, these I should add as a historical note in, in every modern war in the 20th century you have people that want to avoid being drafted. Every single one, including <laughs> Americans. This is not unusual. <laughs> one of the books I, I read or, or looked at in, in, in thinking about more generally about exiles was one that was written by a, a, a resistor, uh, an American who fled to Canada. Yeah, it's during, not unusual. And, and the, but what is unusual, though, is the numbers, I think, in, in, or at least you can compare the numbers. And I sure. don't think that the numbers... In the Vietnam case, I don't have them right at hand, were, were overwhelming numbers. I mean, people found a lot of different ways, of course, to resist. Yeah, I, I don't know. Draft. I just know that uh, it's pretty common to try to avoid the draft in the, every war in every country. The Germans, I mean, in in the uh, even I think in the 19th century, I mean, they were I found examples yeah, of that. It was uh, well, Japanese, yeah. you know, going to South America. Well, when they levied uh, a riot in New York during the Civil War, there was an enormous riot. <laughs> You could pay somebody to to take your right. place. Yeah, so it's, this uh, that, is not a particularly Russian thing. <laughs> no, but 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 if we're talking about the Russian context, just to quibble just a little bit with that is is I don't think, you know, when the Nazis in, invaded in June of 1941, that was you know what's now called the Great Patriotic War. I think yeah. ordinary Russians felt a, a threat that they certainly did not feel. I think this that's war. Right. In yeah. Ukraine, and you saw a lot of partisan warfare back there yeah. as well, which I think is an indication that some people they don't even need in, in, in formal instructions yeah. from the army; they're ready to do battle. This is, I mean, you haven't asked me this, but this is sort of a separate issue. I, I don't think this is a terribly popular war, Putin's war. Why do you think that? Anecdotally, from all of the contacts that I still have in Russia, uh, from what I read. Uh, there is actually surprising amounts of information available if you really look for it from inside of Russia. I'm I'm almost afraid to mention some of them, but for example, the journal that it's publicly published in in the Lake Baikal region out in Siberia that mm -hmm. has many articles about the young people who have gone and are have died and have come back in their coffins and their funerals and all that sort of stuff and and about how they have to uh you know the putin has not dared to do another conscription but they have to pay 
uh, people a, a fair amount of money. I mean, in in relative terms, compared to what like they might make if they just work for the year at some job, uh, a large bonus in order to conscript mm -hmm. and promises of death benefits and things like that. And and many of the conscripts are not ethnically Russian. They're far from you know they're not from elites right. in Moscow and Saint Petersburg. Uh, you have uh, mounting protests from some mothers and wives, you know, whose uh, sons or husbands are on the front lines. Not exactly anti-war, but asking like, why is why aren't they being rotated out? Well, and, this, and as you know, this is also a Russian historical tr tradition. It happened in Afghanistan. Yeah, Mother, mothers against the war in Afghanistan, which in was Chechen, important. In Chechen, they in actually Chechen, led, yeah. led the charge in the fir yeah. first Chechen war that Yeltsin mounted, and I think many people credit them with helping to bring that yeah. war to a pretty, you know, not a particularly winning conclusion no. on the Russian side. It was kind of a kind of a stalemate. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we've seen. I mean, Putin's Russia is different. It's more repressive, and I think people are more reluctant to express themselves publicly. But I, I will stand on, I don't think this is a particularly popular war. I, I think this is a kind of a misconception in the West, as they think of Putin as Stalin, and that's not right, in the sense that there really is discussion of the war in Russia. Mm -hmm. You can find it online in a lot of places. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, so you want to be careful about what you say. Yes, but there's discussion. Well, there's a chapter in in the book that I call the Information Resistance, which is about media outlets that moved out of Russia into yeah. various places, usually in Eastern Europe, uh, who are continuing. TV Rain is an example. It's now based in Amsterdam, but they're broadcasting or they're streaming in the Russian language on channels like YouTube, which. Mm -hmm surprisingly or not remain open in Russia I guess you know Putin doesn't want to shut off access to their you know the cartoons that kids watch and all the uh, all the non-political fare that's on YouTube but in any case for any Russian inside of Russia who chooses to avail himself or herself of this kind of information there's an enormous amount of you know yeah, there is. coverage commentary and so forth um I mean, it's also my impression that that many Russians choose not to consume that because they just through avoidance or, you know, it's exhausting. They just hard you know, to blame them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe some latent sense of guilt or or for whatever reason, you know. Uh, but 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 the information is is there. Absolutely, yeah, it it's not yeah. like and in I, Stalin's and I don't time. Think most of, I don't think Americans at least know this that there's actually a lot of discussion. And, uh, you know, because the BBC will lead with somebody, you know, getting arrested for saying something bad about the Russian army. Yeah. And that does happen. It does. <laughs> but it doesn't happen very often. Um, well, we'll find out what happens in March. But there is the uh, a candidate, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is running for yet another term uh, in elections scheduled for the middle of March. And there is a quote-unquote opposition candidate, yeah. uh, Boris Nadezhda, and his last name, it, it's funny because it's the sort of the Russian root word for, for hope. Hope, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, who's sort of a familiar figure, but what's striking is uh, to gather the petitions, to the signatures for the petitions, that, you know, to put him on the ballot, uh, by all accounts, something like 150,000 or so Russians have publicly 
yeah. you know, gone to, you know, the registration hall, put their names down, their passport details and so forth. So, mm -hmm. you know, and the, that, that's kind of a brave thing to brave do. People. Yeah, and, no yeah. question. Brave people. You may people. not even be the last I heard some some talk that, you know, the the some of these signatures are going to be struck down. Yeah, by that's what I heard too, that the election commission was fiddling dead, around. They're with dead, it. dead souls or yeah, you know, something. something. Yeah. But but yeah. but Nevertheless, just uh, to me, another indication that there's something stirring there. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Well, let's turn back to the um, exiles again. Um, yeah. Uh, and you kind of already answered this, but um, uh, is it organized? Does it have a leader? And is that leader Alexei Navalny? Right. So kind of a complicated question. Um, and we can use a parallel from... Russian history, because sometimes the exiles are much better organized than at other times. I mean, I think that the Bolsheviks were pretty well, the people aligned with them were pretty well organized in their time, and they had much more of a kind of a model that came from sort of, you know, the Marxist-Leninist kind of th thinking mm -hmm. on how all this is to be done, you know, the vanguard. Democratic so centralism yeah. in a theory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah something like that. Um, now, uh, we have a more fragmented, uh, community of exiles and, you know, politically speaking, it's probably not as bad as, you know, when all of the whites left after the Russian revolution and they became just, you know, famously fragmented. And some of them just lived in this netherworld where yes, you know, one day there'll be the czar, you know, a new czar will return and all that thing. And they just you know, fought with each other and it was, you know, pretty, pretty tragic. Uh, I think now there is a lot of infighting. There's, a, you know, there are egos, you know, clashing. Uh, and there's even, you know, debate about this principle of how organized or how uniform they should be. So many of the more prominent voices in the exile movement now, like uh, Sergei Guryev, I, I mentioned, who's about to become actually the dean of the London Business School, he's the kind of person who could be a future prime minister in a post-Putin government. I mean, he's all, you know, for unity and speaking with one voice. The Navalny people are are not. Um, I mean, Alexei Navalny is the number one figure in the sense of being the most rec recognizable. And I think also in the sense of having the most charisma and he, you know, after he was poisoned, he was in Germany, he recovered and then he made this sort of philosophical decision, uh, which probably some people think was, was crazy to go back to Russia to subject himself to whatever, you know, he knew he would be brave man. Yes. You know, this act of defiance, but that has given him, he's almost like a living martyr. So that has given him a certain standing above all others. You know, you have Mikhail Horakovsky, who's, in London, you know, Horkovsky was in the 1990s in Russia, he was one of the leading oligarchs. Uh, and then he clashed with Putin and was put in jail for, I think it was nine years, something like that. And finally cut a deal that he would leave Russia and never come back. And mm -hmm. he's adhered to that deal. But I think because of his past as an oligarch and because he's been so long removed from Russia, he doesn't have the kind of, you know, standing and, and stature that uh, Navalny does. Or somebody like Gary Kasparov, I mean, you know, he's a former chess champion, so forth, but his connection to Russia is, is you know, many years in the past as well. So some of these figures, you know, 
in some ways have a greater platform in the in the West than, than they do in inside of Russia, which is where it, it really counts. And so they're divided. Uh, I don't think so much among aims. I mean, they all, of course, desire to get rid of Putin. They all say they stand for some form of, you know, democratic Republican government as mm -hmm. well. I mean, constitutional republic uh, rule and and some say as navalny now says actually that the flaw in the post-soviet system was that the president uh, it was too strong a presidential system they gave the president too many powers and it should be more like a parliamentary republic so you have mm -hmm. that sort of discussion as well but the short answer to your question is that there's there's not that much unity among them, and that is somewhat debilitating to the movement. Yeah, it's a nice segue again. Uh, how much do uh, ordinary Russians, if I can posit the ordinary Russian, which doesn't really exist, yeah. how much do ordinary Russians know about the exile opposition, and, and what particularly do they know about Navalny? I think they know a fair amount about Navalny because he's received, uh, he's not entirely ignored, you know, or hasn't been by the sort of the state media because they know about the prosecution of Navalny and I'm sure they know about, you know, the poisoning and so forth. I don't know that they follow, I tend to doubt that they follow closely exile, uh, you know, the, the sort of the political aspects of the exile movement. But one interesting thing that's been happening is that, that there are popular Russian performers like comedians and, and musicians who are in exile who do have, you know, a real following inside of Russia. Uh, for example, the singer uh, Monetushka, she, she was very big inside of Russia. She, she's now outside and she's written this anthem, Ya Perizhavu, I will survive. I will survive, yeah. yeah. And, and it's very popular. <clears throat> and now uh, I call this sort of the cultural resistance, which, you know, this can be sometimes more effective. We saw this in Soviet times than you know, a joke or, or a song can, can resonate more than just, you know, somebody holding up a political, you know, placard or something. And so well, the a comedian, a, a, a television star comedian became the president of Ukraine. Well, so. There you go. Yeah. Well, Maxim Galkin, who is the husband of uh, Alec Pugachev, you know, Galkin is is uh, in this kind of exile anti-war camp, as is Alec Pugachev, who is a, who is a revered Figures, yeah, goes yeah. back into Soviet times. Yeah. But anyway, some indication of how the Kremlin is thinking about this is they're now going after, they're cracking, they're trying to crack down on these prominent exiles in countries where they want to perform, like uh, Thailand and Indonesia and Dubai. They're trying to get the authorities there to to keep them from performing. Uh, one rock band, the rock B B two, they they had to be. They ended up in Israel, but they wanted to perform in in Thailand. And I think it's clear that the the Kremlin was kind of directing this effort to keep them from performing. So they, you know, th there's there's a battle going on that I think is almost invisible to most people in the West, partly because it's conducted entirely in the Russian language. Uh, between the sort of Putin camp inside of Russia and the anti-Putin camp 
outside of Russia. Mm-hmm. And it's apps, you know, it, it has the flavor of a civil war, really. I mean, they yeah. you cannot even fathom the depths of, of hatred that you know towards the other that exist in well, that, that's a that's another camp. nice that's another nice segue. Uh, and the question that occurs to me is how seriously does Putin and Putin's circle take these people? Are they afraid of them? Yes, I think at some level uh, they are. I mean, Putin is refers to them as as scum, uh, yeah, and you know as, as traitors, essentially, and you know scared. I, I think they get under his skin, mm-hmm. and he he claims that you know, Russia has benefited from this kind of cleansing of you know the this this vermin right. uh but 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 at the same time uh you know there are consequences i mean estimates vary but some not insignificant chunk of the sort of the high tech you know brain power yeah led uh russia after the war places like you know moscow and st petersburg were you know fairly liberal places where these <laughs> workers were and they they can more easily work remotely uh, in, in many cases. So, you know, that was part of their calculus in, in leaving. Uh, but that's not good, you know, for the for, for Russia, no. for, for the Kremlin. You know, does he think that they're about to topple him? I mean, I don't know. I, I think there are, there are anarchists who, who are certainly seeking to kill him and blow up, you know, which has happened <laughs> yeah. before. I met a little, you know, a segue, a little... Kropotkin in in Yerevan, uh, Andre. We met. You know, I, I was visiting a Ukrainian uh, refugee assistance center, just this little kind of hole in the wall building in some you know, some alleyway in Yerevan. And Andre, you know, this nineteen year old kid with shining eyes. You know, I began pouring out his his you know heart you know phrases of you know bakunin and kropotkin i mean just yeah. everything and this is also a russian tradition yeah tradition and you know the generational you know his his parents were cowards because yeah. even though in the in the home they would describe their you know opposition to the war and to putin they would never make that a public you know take a public stand there but he did and he felt so strongly about it that he fled and I think they were in Turkey at the time. Anyway, I met him in Yerevan. And he told me he was devoting his his meager, you know, Bitcoin savings to some anarchist <laughs> in, yeah. in Russia that was uh, uh, that is credibly uh, uh, <clears throat> credited with uh, destroying railroad tracks, yeah. for example, to disturb you know the the, the shipments because uh, the the rail networks, as we know, yeah. are so important. In Russia. So anyway, you have somebody like that who's who's. I mean, if if Putin's train blew up someday with yeah. Putin in it, that that I don't think we should consider that to be like the biggest shock. You know, there are people who are actively seeking to eliminate him. Well, in addition to the Ukrainians who've been pretty. In addition active to and, the Ukrainians, yeah. but but believe and, me, there are Russians who are. I mean, I talked to Russians who were. Uh, actively assisting the Ukrainian war cause. Mm-hmm. And it's a big debate among the exiles, actually, on the moral, you know, the morality of this, whether you are helping Ukrainians to defend themselves or are you simply killing yeah. you know, fellow Russians? Uh, but for some of them, they've crossed that line mm-hmm. and 
they're contributing money, you know, for example, to purchase drones that can uh, kill Russian tanks, which have mm -hmm. Russian, you know, soldiers inside of them. Soldiers on them yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so that that whole thing. So I think Putin is certain, certainly, I think they've gripped him in some way. He doesn't take kindly to this kind of, you know, mm -hmm. revolt. Yeah. We saw that with Prigozhin as well, right? No, you know, he doesn't. warlord no. that uh, yeah. almost surely the Kremlin had eliminated. Yeah. So this is a little bit speculative, but let's just put it this way. There are some who might argue that the taste for what these dissident emigres have on offer in Russia is relatively slight. That being liberal democratic government of the Western kind, mm -hmm. that they would more or less prefer Putin seventy one. He can't last forever. Yeah, they more or less prefer another Vojt, another uh, leader or chief mm -hmm. to kind of take the reins. And right. I've actually heard Russian friends of mine. This is a long time ago. That they, who basically argued that Russian is Russia is ungovernable. Mm -hmm. That it can't operate like it's. You know, I had a friend that used to say. Russia, ethnic Armenia, Russia, it's not Germany. You're right. And, and, <laughs> and it's just ungovernable by uh, Western mechanisms. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know how widespread these feelings are, but I just wondered if you could speculate a bit about, you know, it, you know, say, for instance, that they did get a shot at making Russia a liberal democracy. Would Russians want that? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that every generation or two russia does get a shot at, at something like that i mean it had yeah. that you know with the collapse of the soviet union uh and well even more in the in the the years leading to the collapse you you had a genuine you know glasnost and and, and pedestroika yeah. i mean you i mean that was a real thing and i think it came although gorbachev of course uh the last soviet leader uh unleashed that it there was a lot to unleash i mean there was a popular demand, I think, for political parties, for publication of all, you know, whatever people wanted to really write about, whether it was in literature or in politics and, and all sorts of things. So so I think there is at the grassroots um, a genuine desire for that. There's a certain fear. I think it's a complicated question. I mean, there's a fear, as it's been expressed to me, I forget the Russian word, but there are all kinds of Russian words for like d disorder, uh, and, you know, like chaos. So, so there is a certain feeling that associates democracy with chaos because, you know, the barriers kind of come down and yeah. then, you know, the, 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 the predatory aspects of society assert themselves. Yeah. So there are people when Putin came on who said, yes, we need this, you know, the, the, we need the strong man yeah. to keep such forces at bay. But I don't think that's necessarily, I don't really see that as a universal, you know, feeling. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't either. I just have met it before. Yeah. Um, and you find and, interesting, and, you know, populism, but the other thing is, is sort of a, also an aspect of the Russian experience. And part of my fascination with the Russian Orthodox Church is that unlike the Catholic Church, there's no... Uh, like in, in orthodoxy, there's no pope, you know, there's no one right. source of authority. And in fact, the way it works is you have this institution of the wise, man, the starets, the wise man, the elder. Yeah. And guess what? How is he selected? <laughs> He's selected by by the people of the faith. Yeah, They just decide like who who is wise and who has charisma. 
Uh, and yeah, I met once a such a figure once at the monastery in the Optinopustin that the Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov modeled his his Staritz figure after a person there. I mean, it's been around forever. And and still, I met I met this businessman's uh, you know wise man, his uh, you know the one he told everything to, of course. But but so so that's a that's a very populist. You know, there's a certain anti-authoritarian aspect of Russian society that I think people don't always appreciate. And it comes out in their humor, it comes out in in lots of things, but that's one aspect of it. So, you know, it's an open question. I don't know that it's ever really been tested. You know, can can Russia govern itself that well, way? Well, part of the reason, yeah, part of the reason I'm interested in this question that I ask it is, is that in about 1999, mm -hmm. is that when Putin came to power? Was it 1999? He came 2000. He was appointed remember president at the very on the very last day of 1999 yeah i was very optimistic that russia was on the way to liberal democracy and multi-party politics and so on and so forth and i mm -hmm. said so to my regret uh because i really was optimistic i thought that you know that okay here we go we're going to see something yeah. that looks a little bit like germany um i think the west helped way. to screw things up though as well i mean i wrote a piece when i was in washington and probably 1998 about all these different ways in which I thought the Clinton administration uh, got things wrong and it's Russia approach, but not just the Clinton administration, but it was partly they, they insisted on this kind of big bang conversion to Western free markets and, you know, yeah. everything associated with that, I think it had more to do with c capitalism and the economy than it did necessarily with with politics and Yeltsin, you know, and his advisors, uh, people like Gaidar, accepted a lot of that. And I think many Russians were horrified at the result. I mean, there was, you know, inflation. There was just a massive decrease in their standard of living, and they didn't, you know, banks failed. I mean, the Russian financial crisis in August of 1998, you know, which preceded uh, Putin, I think help convince them that this wasn't necessarily the best path. So I think that's one reason, uh, among others, that this initial phase or this effort of creating a liberal democracy with the collapse of the Soviet Union did not work out. And Putin is, you know, is, comes in as almost this kind of Thermidor type Yeah, that's figure. right. That's that's right. And I don't think that most Americans appreciate what the 1990s was for the Russians because it oh, was truly really tough. horrible. Really it tough. was unbelievably horrible. I remember going there in 1991 and seeing just ordinary people, yeah. very well-trained, these are Muscovites, ordinary people, well-trained, university-educated, on the street selling stuff. Just in Talkuchki, in these these crowds, yeah. where people just go sell things. Well, everywhere. They, I was they've in, been reduced to poverty. I was in Minsk in 1994, and people, you know, there was maybe a little bit of horse meat or something available in the right. butcher shops, right. but not not a whole lot Yeah, else. I don't think people appreciate the way Russians think about it, because it was truly really right. a time of troubles. It was horrible. Time of and, troubles. And, and you know, and it you know, it really impoverished them. They were wondering where their next meal was going to come from, and, and you know, you know, and they think of themselves as very modern people, well educated. They can do all the things that anybody else can do. They, and they, here are, they well, are selling their stuff on the street. Like yeah. what happened? You know, they, they are well educated. Yeah, uh, and uh, and and it was shocking to them, uh, and I certainly understand that. And a want you know desire to return to some sort of order. Well. I get that too. 
like you know the inflation like yeah. I, I remember changing money and getting these enormous stacks of rubles just like incredible amounts of rubles for a few dollars and just thinking wow this is a mess yeah also the um, oligarchs you know were a real thing and they yeah, were very they much were. they were intimately associated with the yeltsin government i mean they did this loans for shares deals where basically they propped up yeltsin's you know re-election in return for these you know penny on the dollar shares and all these incredibly valuable natural resource extraction companies. That's how, yeah. you know, people like Mikhail Khodorkovsky came Khodorkovsky, yeah. to power. So, so, so uh, yeah, I mean, the Russians have a lot of associations with that, but just to circle back to your question, I don't, to me, in my mind, that does not mean, you know, the question has been answered about whether Russia could handle that, <clears throat> you know, do sort of a regular, what we think of as a regular governance. It was once said to me, I mean, just to give you a slightly different take on it by somebody with Putin, actually, we were having lunch, one of the few times I could kind of get a, a Putin guy out of the office and, you know, tell me what he thought. And after maybe a glass of wine or something, he said, you know, Paul, the problem with Russia is just too big. You know, I mean, yeah. we have too many time zones. It's just too large. It's almost impossible to govern from the center. And yet we're almost doomed to have to do that. So, so you know, one of my exiles, to go back to the exiles, is a Siberian nationalist. Uh, and he, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you meet these, it's it's great when you meet these people. This is a brilliant Russian physicist, yeah. an Elon Musk type, who actually helped devise with the Ukrainian physicist friend an, an anti-missile uh, defense system that was deployed in the yeah, early days. Yeah. yeah, you know, and he is a Siberian nationalist, sincerely. Uh, and he believes that, you know, there should be a Republic of Siberia that will be liberal and democratic and all these kinds mm -hmm. of things. So there are various, you know, when, if you if you want to sort of extend yourself in a speculative fashion into a post-Putin future, there are plenty of Russians, you know, who, who think about these things, who think Russia should be more federated or broken, I don't know, Switzerland, or I think Khodorkovsky yeah. actually has a Swiss model where the, I'm not a, by far an expert in, in Swiss, but Cantons. I understand they, the Cantons, <laughs> I guess, have a fair degree of autonomy. I don't know. Yeah, just, yeah well, something I don't know like that. And, yeah. and or even America has, although I think we've become pretty imperial, and but that's a yeah. different subject. But we, you know, our states have. Yep. So, so you don't have that in Russia. I mean, the governors are appointed now by the appointed. Yeah, yeah, and and so you just you know what they call the vertical vlast. You know, the vertical of of power, the hierarchy or, of power is yeah. is really what informs you know how this what people are used to accustomed to and what you know is still very much stamped you know uh in their system but i'm an optimist so i will confess I'm too. That. I, yeah, I, me too i'm just an optimist i think, I think it's gonna things go great. can change <laughs> i think in russia it's one of those places where every as i say every generation or two uh yeah. you know something will change when putin goes however yeah. he goes whenever he goes yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's... Um, well, I think we, we've we've taken up enough of your very valuable time. I have a kind of traditional final question that I ask everybody when I do interviews on my shows. Yes. And that is, so I'll ask it now, what are you working on now? What am I working on now? Um, I am doing a a piece about, it's a, it's a magazine piece on what, with Trump's possible coming back to power as a uh, hook, are more Americans thinking about living abroad? And, you know, I don't wouldn't want to say necessarily getting into going to exile, but is that becoming a more attractive option for them? Uh, so I'm thinking about 
you know, that that uh, that piece. And presumably we're not talking Canada or Mexico here. <laughs> or maybe Mexico, <laughs> Mexico has become quite popular in, people in Mexico City, but um, some of the New Havens are, you know, P Portugal. Yeah, Portugal. Uh, That's Spain, what I hear about. Yeah. Italy. I mean, you know. I have friends. I have friends who are my age. I'm 62 Asia, too. talk about Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of Americans are tired, you know, you know, they waking up to the school shootings and things like that. So yeah, it's a complicated thing. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, All right. that, will be, that will be an immediate next for me. And beyond that, we'll just have to see. Uh, you yeah. Know. All right. Well, Paul, thanks very much for speaking with us today. Thank you, uh, Marshall. Right. I appreciate it. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.